Hello, my name is Joe. Welcome. This is the Joe Martino Show, and I am excited to talk to you today. I have two questions that I want to get to, and if they don't take up the whole time, I want to talk about the only two choices you have in a relationship, period. No ifs, ands, or buts, no to an extent, no sort of, no, well, I kind of agree with that. It doesn't matter if you or I agree with it. We only get two choices, and that's it. All right, let's kick it off. You're listening to The Joe Martino Show, a podcast dealing with all things emotional, relational, and human nature. Joe is a licensed counselor in the state of Michigan specializing in relationship therapy. He is also the author of the book, The Emotionally Secure Couple. All advice offered in this episode is offered for entertainment and educational purposes only. Enjoy the show. All right, question number one. Someone wrote in uh, a little upset about my podcast regarding the couch to the 5k or the 5k to the couch um got a lot of a lot of feedback from that i do want to say i appreciate all the feedback i appreciate people stopping me and telling me hey i listen to your podcast appreciate you emailing me and letting me know that uh and so i'm not at all bothered by the intensity or the emotional response that was given Uh, i did dialogue back and forth with the person a little bit and they asked me not to use their name which is fine um the gist of their argument, if you will, the gist of their their frustration with the podcast on going from the 5K to the couch. And by the way, I'm talking about episode 48, if you're wondering. Uh, I entitled it Going from the 5K to the Couch. And it's a little bit of a play on words with the program from the couch to the 5K. I thought I said that in the program. I went back and listened to it and I, I heard it. I, I know some people have written and may not have heard that part. And I get it. You listen to a podcast doing different things, you know, work, cleaning the house, driving, whatever, uh, getting distracted is easy enough. Uh, and, and so the, the, the central thrust of, of this person, um, I'll call him Tim, not his name, but we did agree that that would be the name that I would use. Uh, Tim was like, well, couldn't that be true of anything? And the answer is absolutely. The idea behind the podcast, and I'm not going to rehash it all. If you listened to it last week, uh, if you didn't go back and listen is If people use something good to soothe, they will end up with more problems and they're going to need to go to therapy. Here's the problem for the the podcast title and certainly for the part of my book, which, which kind of started this line of thinking for me. From anything to the couch doesn't really have the same ring, nor is it going to catch somebody in a very crowded market, a very crowded world to cause them to stop and go, oh, wait, what does this mean? And so they move from, you know, they go from the, oh, what does this mean? And then and now they're interested, we have their interest, and maybe they pick up the book, maybe they listen to the podcast, etc. And I will say this, I said this to Tim, and I will say this one caveat, anything that gives you a false sense of control is going to be higher risk for temptation on those things. And what I mean by that is anything that drives you sideways and exercise is one of the things that's easiest because it has almost immediate results, especially running. It has almost immediate results uh, as far as happy drugs hitting your system. These are the drugs that your body naturally produces in response to exercise. So that puts you at higher risk or that form of soothing at higher risk to be used inappropriately. But it could literally be anything. I went out with friends this weekend, actually with the same friend that I was referencing in the podcast, and we were talking about it. And she said, well, it could be anything. I'm like, yeah, it could be church. It could be uh, your kids' sports. It could be getting straight A's. It could be how you clean you keep your house. 
It could be literally anything that you use to soothe. And if you can't soothe, you're still going to need therapy. So you end up on the couch. So hopefully that answers any questions by anyone. Uh, my friend that I referenced in the podcast, she actually told me she wasn't offended after she heard the whole podcast because she realized uh, that was how it works. So that was good. Uh, but it can be anything at all. If it, you use it to soothe instead of process, you run into trouble, which led Tim to ask me a follow-up question. Well, what's the difference between soothing and processing? And I hate to do this, but actually I don't hate to do it at all. That's probably a whole podcast to itself, which we're going to do in the future. So hopefully that answers any questions you might have had that you didn't ask. A couple of you wrote in and asked about that. Uh, Tim was the most vociferous in his initial email, so I responded to him, and he responded to me, and we talked back and forth, and hopefully that answers his question as well. Okay, but that is obviously not the question that I wanted to get to last week, uh, and I didn't because the episode took longer than I thought it would when I was first putting it together. Last week, I received an email, or a text, excuse me, from a family member, a distant family member, you know, one of my cousins, asking what my thoughts were on medicine, anxiety meds for her 11-year-old, because the 11-year-old is going through some difficult situations. We're not talking like, oh, it's a hard math class. Uh, My cousin and her 11-year-old's father are not together. She's since met a great guy. They've married and they even have children, you know, of their own. So there's this, you know, story there. And so the, her 11-year-old is having anxiety problems because bio dad made some poor choices, got himself into some trouble, and now he's not going to be able to interact with his daughter, which is my cousin's daughter, on a regular basis. And at 11, that can be very difficult to process, right? A lot of times, and we've talked about this on this show many times, parents going sideways doesn't mean that the person doesn't handle their children well, handle the relationship with their children well. And so what I told my cousin was that this is outside the scope and sequence of my license. In other words, we don't do pharmacology in order to become a counselor. But I would be a fool to try to deny that I don't get asked a lot what I think about meds. And so I offer my opinion. It is a personal opinion informed by professional practice. It is not a professional opinion because that would be outside the scope and sequence of my license. In other words, I don't do anything with drugs. But I discouraged her. I was like, I don't think you should do it if you can help it. Don't put her on anxiety meds. And I know right now there are people like, well, I put my little Jimmy, I put my little Susie, uh, my little Alex, my little Andrea on anxiety meds, and it was you know helpful. And I wouldn't deny that. Now, one of the nice things that I see in the field as I talk to people, as I read literature, is there is a movement for people who are prescribing meds, so psychiatrists, PCPs, etc., to to only subscribe it if the client gets. So involved in some talk therapy first, which is what I encouraged my cousin to do with my niece or my second cousin, excuse me, not my niece, my second cousin, her daughter. Holy cow. It look, it's been a morning. I had two birds in my house when I woke up this morning. I had to chase them around and get them out. And so we're just going to hit a little reset here. What I encouraged my niece, my cousin to do with her daughter is get her into talk therapy first and see how that goes. Whether we want to admit it or not as a professional field, and if somebody in my field gets mad at me for this, so be it. 
We don't know why a lot of the anxiety meds work, and we do know that they have side effects that we don't all we don't know all of them. And that's kind of how it works. Now we can argue the SSRI thing. Uh, there's a movement at Harvard right now that is kind of blowing that up. Uh, there is a book, The Emperor's New Drugs, where a, a guy did a longitudinal study. And what he came to the conclusion of was, is we know that anxiety meds work in the short term, but they work quicker than they should. So it should take two weeks for some, four weeks for some, eight days for some. I, you know, I don't know. It depends on which drug you're talking about. But they work before that time is up. And so it can't be the drugs because they're not actually into your system, system doing what you think they're doing. And so one of the things you have to decide is from whence does anxiety come? And I, I, I talk about this a lot. I don't know that I've done an episode on it. That might be another good episode. You know, if you get caught in a problem-solving loop and you can't solve it and you care, you end up in anxiety because you start obsessing about the problem. You have a habit of thinking that runs you around the problem again and again and again and again and again and again. Here's a simple test. Spell cat. Go ahead. Spell cat. Now spell dog. What's two plus two? Four plus four? Eight plus eight. What's eight times four? Seven times four. What's 10 minus nine? You probably solved all those. I just gave you problems. You entered into the problem solving loop and you solved them and it was okay. Now they were very minimal problems. Who's the undersecretary of finance to France? Don't know? Do you care? If you can't solve the problem, but you don't care about the answer, you're okay too. You're, you're good to go. You're not going to end up in anxiety. By the way, to my knowledge, there is no undersecretary of finance to France. Now, imagine you're 11 and you're used to talking to your dad every day, even when you're at your mom's, and now you can't because something has happened outside of your control and he can't talk to you every day. Or if he can, it's for a very short time. How do you solve that problem? Now, imagine that you are a small business owner and payroll is $22,000 this Friday, and you only have eighteen. And you, you exhausted all of your lines of credit. You, you don't have any more business loans you can take. How do you solve that problem? Now you have problems that you care about and that you want to solve, but you can't. Imagine you're a 41-year-old woman married 20 years, and your husband says, I want a divorce. And there's nothing you can do to fix it. You didn't see it coming. Welcome to a problem you want to solve and you can't. That is the recipe for anxiety. You're caught in a problem-solving loop and you go to take that, you go to solve that problem and you can't, and so you go back to it and you start to habituate about it. You start to mull it over, you start to chase it down and it runs 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 and it runs. You're caught in a spinning vortex from hell and you're in anxiety. And here's my beef, my personal beef with medicine. It doesn't solve that problem. It just numbs it. It's like taking Tylenol for a headache. Tylenol doesn't make the pain go away. It just disconnects your body from from realizing that it's in pain. Pain relief medicine it relieves the the knowledge that you're in pain. It doesn't relieve the problem. And one of the things that we're not doing well is we're not admitting the fact that we're not sure why anxiety meds work. And so what happens is somebody's on anxiety meds, they go on them, 
and they become dependent on them. I know they're not addictive according to the FDA, but they, they become dependent upon them, at least mentally. It becomes a mental dependency. Or it doesn't work, and then we have to change it, and then there's terrible side effects. And there, let me tell you, there are a lot of terrible side effects. Now look, if your kid is on anxiety meds, I'm not saying that you did something wrong. I'm saying that if when people ask me, here's my answer, have you tried talk therapy first? I've had clients, both adults and adolescents, where we've done talk therapy, and uh, I have said to them, you know what, we need to talk about meds. We need to talk about anxiety meds for you so that we can have the best possible approach to helping you be healthy. And you'll meet therapists all across the spectrum. I'm less concerned about that. I just want to make sure we have a conversation as a society where we admit there's really smart people at Harvard. And they're saying, well, wait a second, this SSRI thing might not be exactly what it is. In other words, it might not just be you were born to have anxiety. It might be that anxiety runs in families because you learn problem-solving loops from someone who doesn't do well at disengaging when the problem can't be solved and they care. And so they have anxiety and they don't process well. And so they habituate and they spin and their habit of thinking goes nonstop around the problem. And so anxiety happens. And there's another thing we have to consider. Maybe anxiety for a short term isn't bad. There's a fascinating study done by Hebrew scientists where they said PTSD is actually good for the body for a short time. It keeps you alive in really dangerous situations. And maybe anxiety in a situation where you have a really significant problem and you don't know how to solve it, maybe that's one of the ways of your body telling you, hey, you're alive and you have to solve this, but if you can't, you can get through it. And we have to embrace that. If you want more, a little bit more to kind of just flip your world upside down, look up Kelly McConaughey, uh, How to Make Stress Your your Friend. It's a TED Talk on YouTube. Uh, look up her book, The Upside of Stress. She'll it'll 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 take most of what you've heard almost all of your life and flip it on its head. So if you're sitting there, and I told my cousin this, if you're sitting there and you're thinking about medicine, I would discourage this for your children. I would discourage it without talk therapy first. Find out what's going on in their life that they're, they're habituating about and then see if talk therapy helps that. Most of the time it will, not all the time. And sometimes we're going to use meds in conjunction with that talk therapy. But a lot of times talk therapy is going to make the meds not necessary. And only, you know, you, your child and your PCP or your psychiatrist can determine that. But try it. So that's a common question that I get. It's a common a uh, question that I get from parents, because we all, I, I believe that I've never, I've met, I can't say never, I've met very few people who don't want to do what's best for their kids. We all want to do what's best for our kids. And and one of the co- most common arguments I hear for doing things, and I don't think it's a very good argument because I think it's fear-based, is the argument, well, I just wouldn't want something bad to happen and I didn't do anything. That's a pretty scary argument because, I mean, there's a lot of things that you could do. Right, it's fear-based, and I'm not saying don't do anything. Talk therapy is not not doing anything. We have uh, literature, and by literature I mean research that is just replete with the fact that good CBT therapy, right, cognitive restructuring, is as effective as any of our medicines. One of the things that that is also well known and just 
we don't want to talk about it because it's not quick is if people could walk for 45 minutes at a pace where they have to take a deep breath to talk. So they don't have to run. They don't have to sprint. They don't have to spend an hour and a half in the gym. 45 minutes, maybe an hour of, of, a, of a solid walk where they have to kind of do the whole <gasps> in order to talk. It has the same effect on the part of your brain where, where the SSRI people sit. It has the same effect as most anti-anxiety meds certainly at the lower to medium doses. There's research out there to to prove that. If you don't believe me, that's fine. Look it up in Google Scholar. Or or buy a subscription to like one of the university libraries and and, and get in there. I'm not saying that you shouldn't do meds. I'm saying that meds shouldn't be our first choice. And I'm afraid in our society they've become that. And I, I want that to, I want that conversation to change. And so that's why I bring it up today. I asked her, I was like, hey, can I use this question in my podcast? She graciously said yes. I get it. There are a lot of hard problems. I, there have been nights where I have laid awake and stared at the ceiling. But talk therapy is almost, I, I think, is a much better first option. And I think we need to have that as part of our conversation in society. Okay, so that's two questions that I wanted to cover today. I have some time. We're right at that 17-minute mark, almost 20 minutes. I'm probably going to go long today because I want to talk to you about two choices you have in every relationship you have. Maybe this becomes part one and next week we do part two. I don't know. But one of the things that my wife and I, she's a therapist, we talk about a lot because we do a lot of couples therapy, as you might imagine. One of the things I talk about with a lot of my colleagues who do a lot of couples therapy is when you're in a relationship, you really get two choices as to how you approach listening. You can either be right or you can be reconciled. There really isn't an in-between. And people chafe at this. People, they don't like this idea. And that doesn't really have anything to do with facts, right? You, you can dislike a fact. I can dislike the fact that gravity exists. But if I jump off my roof, I'm not flying unless I have something attached to me that can produce greater thrust than gravity for my weight. Facts are not affected by whether or not I like them. And in a couple and in a relationship, you only get two choices. Do you want to be right or do you want to be reconciled? Now, here's what I mean by that. The right is, and you'll see this when people argue, the right is you always have a reason for why you did something that caused the other person pain. You're justified. You have an excuse. You get to say, well, I did it because. Like maybe I say something to my wife that's hurtful. And she, she calls me out on it. She says, hey, you said this and it hurt my feelings. And my response, instead of saying, I'm sorry, I hurt you, which is moving towards reconciliation, right? You, your choices are right or reconciled. Instead of saying, I'm sorry, I hurt you. What I say is, well, you said this. It, it's, it's a little spin on, on the, the four emotional hazards. The second one being emotional or excuse me, of mutual blame, finding the bad guy. You only get two choices. And I watch this all the time in conversations. I watch it. And in, in, with couples in the room, I don't have to use couples in the room as examples. Though. I've had friends go through really bad seasons of marriage. I've had friends go through divorce. And one of the things that happens is there becomes this vicious cycle of conversation where every time something is brought up that one person may have done that was hurtful, instead of leaning into that, instead of owning it, instead of moving the conversation and the relationship towards reconciliation, what they do is they come back with why they were right. They justify themselves. So you get two choices. You either get to be right or you get to be reconciled. You don't get both. 
Another way to look at this is is you can use is that you can use language that will move your relationship and the conversation towards reconciliation, towards the two of you processing through the pain, towards the two of you dealing with the pain, or you can use language that is defensive, that causes you to feel better, that justifies your behavior, but you can't do both. So let's talk about some practical steps on how we can make that better. Let's talk about a few ways not to do it first. Let's say your husband says to you, hey, I was hurt by that. The correct response is not, well, that goes both ways, or I was hurt too. Let's say your wife says, I felt like you were talking poorly to me there. The correct response is, well, you do that too. That's not the correct response. The correct response is, let me understand what's going on in your that you felt that way. So if I understand you correctly, you're saying that I hurt you when I said that. Can you tell me more about that? Can you help me understand both what you were feeling and the facts as you understand them? And you wouldn't word it like that, the facts as you understand, but just tell me the facts. Because sometimes we're going to disagree on those. A lot of times we're going to disagree on interpretations of facts. And a lot of times when I listen to couples argue, they talk about things that are interpretations as facts. So just tell me more about what you were feeling. Why did you feel that way? One time I said to my wife, oh, you're crazy. And I didn't mean it like, oh, you're actually crazy. She was really hurt. So I said, okay, I won't do that anymore. Like that's a reconciliation language. I'm sorry you were hurt. There's a, there's a great song by Kenny Chesney. If you don't like country music, I'm sorry you don't like good music. But Kenny Chesney, there's a song called The Good Stuff where it's about a guy who gets in a fight with his wife. He goes to a bar and he says, give me the good stuff. And the bartender basically says, look, I can give you this, but the good stuff is at home. And so when you go home and you see her tears in her eyes and she says, I'm sorry, say I am too. It's much more lyrical than that. But that's the gist of the words. Too many times when somebody tells us, when someone we love but we've been hurt by tells us that we've hurt them, we just want them to know that we hurt. And that is, that is justified behavior. That is I'm right behavior. That's not reconciliation behavior. And one of the best things that relationships teach us is what it means to go back into the fray to reconcile. Let's say that your husband says to you, I don't feel like you're pulling your fair weight. Being indignant isn't actually going to move that conversation forward. Let's say that your wife says, I feel like you belittle me. Belittling her isn't going to disprove the point. You don't want to do those things. So when somebody says to you, I'm hurt, you're belittling me. I don't feel like you're pulling your weight. You start with, I'm sorry. And, and here's the thing. I remember one time I was, I was working with a couple, two really brilliant people. And they had this conversation, this exercise that we do, where I was like, okay, what's a frustration that you have? And they both had this frustration over uh, an event that had happened where they were driving to the family campsite and, you know, there was a miscommunication over whether or not they were taking two cars or one or what stuff was going in which vehicle, et cetera, et cetera. And, and I remember I let them talk for probably 10, 12 minutes. And I finally said to them, I said to them both, what does it cost you to say, I'm sorry that I didn't make sure that you understood what I was saying? I'm sorry that I didn't stay involved in the conversation long enough to make sure that we had clear understandings between us. I'm sorry that I left you with mixed uh, messages. I'm sorry that I was unclear. I'm sorry that I didn't make sure that I communicated well to you. I'm sorry that I didn't make sure that I heard you right. I'm sorry that I didn't make sure that I understood you correctly. 
It costs you nothing. Zero. Zip. Nada. That's what it costs you. And yet, these people, they were hanging on to it. And they both looked at me like, what? Oh, I never thought of that. And I ask people that all the time. What does it cost you to say you're sorry? Sincerely now, you have to say it sincerely, not this. Well, I'm sorry you felt that way. What does it cost you? Nothing. And that is language and behavior that moves the conversation and the relationship towards reconciliation. This obviously begs the question of what does it, what do I do if I feel like, you know, my spouse is telling me something that I did and I don't see how I got there. Uh, And there's two things to consider. First of all, if you can see it all how they got there, I'm sorry is a great place to start. And just mirror them. You know, I'm sorry, you were hurt by what I did and I'm sorry for that. There's no excuse for me hurting you. One of the things that we do is we give ourselves justification and excuses for poor behavior. And that's, that's silly. But then if you're like, I just don't see that, you can tell them, I'm sorry you're hurt. I'm sorry that I hurt you. That wasn't my intention. Here's what I was hoping to communicate. Here's what I was hoping to say. Here's what I was hoping to do. Whatever the situ- whatever would be the appropriate response to the situation. How could I do that in a way where I could still accomplish that and not hurt your feelings and not cause you pain? There was a situation one time where my wife said to me, I feel like you were doing this. And I was like, well, wait, tell me more about that. So notice I don't start off with, no, I didn't. I'm like, okay, wait, tell me more. And she did. And I was like, okay, so if I hear you right, you're saying I did this, but I didn't tell you. But I distinctly remember telling you, did did you not hear me? She was like, no, I heard you. I was like, okay, well then I don't, I don't know how to do that without you feeling that way. Because I feel like I told you what I was going to do. I went and did it. And you're saying you have a problem with me doing it. I don't understand. And it was just, we were at, we were at the same location and I moved location and I told her, and I said, I'll come back and pick you up. And, and what it was is she, she interpreted, she said, well, I took that to mean that you were feeling this way. And I was like, I really wasn't. I was just off kilter from the situation. And so I needed to make, I needed to make a change. I thought you were coming with me when you chose to not to. I was like, okay, I'll pick you up. And what it was, was is, is it was just a simple misunderstanding that didn't have to turn into a huge fight. And it didn't. Now, we've had huge fights that started out as simple misinterpretations where one of us, I'll say me as often as not, failed to engage in behaviors and language that moves the conversation and the relationship towards reconciliation and more defended my right that I was right and more defended my innocence. And I I get my two choices. I can be right or I can be reconciled. And and a lot of our fights that we've had have started out as simple miscommunications where I chose my right to be right. And it doesn't work. And guys, let me me talk to guys for a second. There are guys out there that they just feel like, well, I'm just going to tell my wife what we're going to do. That is not behavior or language that moves the conversation or the relationship towards reconciliation. Well, we're just going to do this. If your wife doesn't want to do something, find out why. Just last week, I wanted to do something. I really think I need to do this. Uh, I think it's important for our future. It's important for our plan. Uh, But it comes with a price tag. And guys, this price tag happened to be money. Don't kid yourselves. Every choice you make, anytime you say to your wife, we're just going to do this. You know what? Wives, if you say to your husband, we're just going to do this, there's a price tag attached to it that is beyond just money. And, and, and this thing had a, had a money price tag that was kind of high, 
but I believe it, you know, investments, that's the way they work. And my wife was just like, I'm not comfortable. And I wasn't happy. And I could have said, well, I'm just going to do it. I didn't. Thank, thankfully, I, I chose right. And I told her, I'm just not going to do it right now. It's fine. I, 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 we can sit down and talk about it. I'd like to come up with a plan of how we're going to accomplish this goal if we don't do this thing. She agreed to that. And that's reconciliatory uh, behavior. I can't say that word very well. But that's behavior that is that moves towards reconciliation. And those are the two choices we get. I can be right or I can be reconciled. And that's reconciled behavior. Okay, so you're uncomfortable because we're a team. We're partners. We're one. Like the language in a marriage ceremony is the two become one. And so we're one. And so there is no, I'm just going to do this, deal with it. Sometimes there might be, well... You do it that way and I'll do it this way. I, I, yeah, I get that. I'm okay with that. Right? You, you, you go do this or I, you go do that. Like my wife and I have a relatively firm rule of if you're dealing with the kids, I don't unless you ask for my help. And if I'm dealing with the kids, you don't jump in unless I'm asking for your help. Because that, that usually causes, that's like two pilots trying to fly a plane at once. Uh, somebody has to be the co-pilot in each situation. It doesn't mean one person's more valuable or less by, by valuable to the plane, they're both valuable. And sometimes the guy who was the co-pilot will be the pilot. And sometimes the gal or girl who was the pilot becomes the co-pilot on the next flight. That's how it works. And so we take that approach to parenting. But in relationships, moving them forward, if the language is you're just going to do what I tell you, that's almost always bad. That's not you being a good leader. It isn't. If you're demanding your rights... Like, well, okay, you hurt me too. That's bad language. If it's like, well, I don't know that I want to go do this thing with your best buddy from college because the last time he was kind of rude to me and it was, it was hurtful. Well, I don't like your maid of honor. That's not good language. That's language that's demanding my right, not reconciliation. The next time you're in an argument, what I want you to consider is how do I move this conversation and this relationship towards each other. Like if my wife says, you hurt me, okay, tell me more about that. And be willing to ask the question, what could I do to communicate to you what I wanted to communicate to you without hurting you? Okay, we are at 30 minutes. I like to keep these at no longer than 30 minutes. So I'm going to end right there. Maybe we'll pick this up a little bit more next week. I can't say this enough. You only get two choices. Do you want to be right or do you want to be reconciled? A lot of things covered today. We, we talked about a little clarifying question on these 5K to the couch. We've talked about anxiety meds for adolescents. And at the end there, I talked about the only two choices you get in your relationship. I want to thank you for listening. Thank you for giving me your valuable time to listen to this episode and to this podcast. If you find value in this, please share it with your friends. Share it on your social media platforms. Uh, if you need to contact us, send me an email. You can reach me at joemartino.com and just click on the contact me page. There is a web page just for this podcast. It's joemartino.com forward slash podcast. Thanks so much for listening. We'll catch you next time. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's show, please share with a friend. Give us a rating on the iTunes store. And if you have a question for a future show, feel free to send us an email at info at joemartino.com. You can also go to joemartino.com and click on the Contact Me page. Until next time, remember, change possible.